0: Hey, it's Nancy. Before we begin today, I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Crime Beat early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime.
1: A listener's note. The following episode contains coarse language, adult themes, and content of a violent and disturbing nature and may not be suitable for everyone. Listener discretion is advised.
0: When we first created this podcast... One of my goals was to pull back the curtain on crime reporting and give you an inside look at the cases I cover, to provide a voice for people who wouldn't otherwise be heard, and work to show you the impact these crimes have on the victims, their loved ones, and society in general. As a journalist, I'm constantly trying to push these cases forward. So this podcast isn't about simply recounting stories I've covered in the past. It's focused on sharing stories, details you haven't heard anywhere else, and always searching for truth. Sometimes that means setting the record straight, exposing lies, and tracking down new and exclusive information, and always being open to what I might discover or uncover.
2: and I literally feel like it jumped out of my body because they hit the ground. I like, I think I was screaming, I was crying. I still can't forget it. It
3: will never leave my mind, ever. I think about it all the time.
1: He was begging for help, like begging them for the, to stop and he was saying like, he said like, you're killing me, like please stop, I'm dying.
2: He portrayed himself as this like great human being. In reality, he was just the devil.
0: I'm Nancy Hicks, a crime reporter for Global News. Today on Crime Beat, I'm doing something a little different. If you haven't listened to the past 2 seasons yet, I recommend you go back and get caught up. In this episode, I'm going to take you back to some of the stories I've previously shared. A lot of you have messaged me asking about these cases. I've been doing some digging, and I now have a lot of new information and insight that I can share. This is a Crime Beat Update. One of the first stories we shared in season one was about an obsessed ex-boyfriend who decided if he couldn't have her, no one would. Nadia El Dib was found stabbed and shot to death. And now, more than three years later, new details have been revealed about what transpired after the brutal murder. RCMP officers in a tiny rural community west of Edmonton had spotted Adam Bedahar, the man wanted on a Canada wide warrant for the first degree murder of Nadia El Dib. But Bedahar refused to pull over, and that sparked a high speed chase. The Alberta Serious Incident Response Team, or ACERT, looked at this incident. ACERT is an independent body that acts as a police watchdog and determines if the use of force by officers is justified. They found the high-speed pursuit continued for about 70 minutes and covered approximately 140 kilometers. ACERT said officers tried unsuccessfully to deploy spike belts four times, on the fifth attempt, they were finally able to damage the vehicle's tires. Even then, he kept driving.
1: He's got sparks and metal going everywhere now. He's on the axle, he's on the axle, the guy. He's losing control. He is down to 40 kilometers an hour 20, 30... An hour, an hour. He is he is I'm
0: According to ACERT, Bedahar got out of his vehicle and dropped to one knee to take a firing stance with a weapon that looked like a machine gun. When Bedahar fired at the officers, police took cover, and eleven of those officers returned fire. Acert determined the exchange of gunfire between RCMP officers and Bedahar went on for about two minutes. Independent witnesses told Acert that Bedahar appeared to reload his firearm as he sheltered behind his disabled vehicle. One minute and 12 seconds after the start of gunfire, one of the officers near the front waved his arm, directing officers to cease fire. One last shot was fired when an officer perceived movement. In the end, one of Bedahar's shots hit Sergeant Brian Topham in the head. His fellow officers pulled him to safety. You'll recall he miraculously survived, and I spoke with him for that episode. A second officer suffered lacerations to his arm and neck from shrapnel. The investigation into this incident revealed Bedahar fired 10 rounds. Police fired a total of 202 rounds. Acer said the relatively minor injuries the officer suffered was a reflection of good fortune rather than a lack of intent on the part of Bedahar, and went on to say there can be no doubt that he had been firing on police with the intent to kill or seriously injure as many officers as possible. Bedahar died from multiple gunshot wounds. A toxicology report determined that he had neither drugs nor alcohol in his system at the time of his death. A receipt recovered from Bedahar's wallet showed his gun had been purchased just weeks before he killed Nadia El Dib. AcerT found Bedahar presented a lethal risk and was shooting to kill, not just to provoke a police response. I stay in contact with Nadia El Dib's family, especially her sister Rasha. She's doing so much to keep Nadia's memory alive and raising awareness about domestic violence. They don't want Nadia to be another statistic. Nadia's Hope Foundation was founded in April of 2019. And together with police and victim services, Rasha talks to high school students. They're educating young people about healthy relationships, how to spot red flags early on, and they provide information about access to resources if they need them. For more information about the amazing and ongoing work Rasha is doing, you can check out her YouTube channel. We've included links in the show notes. I also have a significant update on another story that impacted a lot of you. As soon as we released The Boy Who Overcame the Odds, the story of Michael Matthews, hundreds of you reached out to thank Michael for his bravery in speaking out. It's an episode that dealt with child abuse within the foster care system, including physical, mental, and sexual abuse. It
1: just seems like I missed out on a lot that most kids usually get. To put me right into straight alcohol and drug, it's like ruined. Any chances that I thought I had of uh, going somewhere in life, I just now, I I didn't try in school. I just only did enough to pass. I couldn't cope.
0: That episode started an important conversation about healing and the never-ending impact of severe trauma.
1: I said, ever since you put my story on the air, I don't try to explain myself to people. I say, look me up and understand me from there. And I get a lot more respect that way because they know what I've been through.
0: Gary Prokopition, a man once named Foster Parent of the Year, was convicted of sexually abusing four foster boys in his care, including Michael. In May of 2015, he was sentenced to 10 years in prison. Now, Prokopition has been granted day parole. The Parole Board of Canada said Prokopition's behavior while in prison has been positive and he's assessed as a low risk for future offending. Prokopition is now 61 years old. In a written decision, the board said Prokopition stated there were no further victims. He said he didn't see his actions as a result of power and control issues but as more of a very misguided sense of closeness. And he expressed regret and remorse and appreciation of the significant and lasting harms imposed on his victims. He told the board he's not particularly attracted to underage males, but took advantage of their availability and vulnerability. And he recognizes that going forward, he'll have to be vigilant about keeping a distance from young men. The board said, Prokopition has been diagnosed with paraphilic disorder and personality disorder and will require ongoing interventions. Despite initially denying responsibility for his offenses, the board said Prokopition has participated in a sex offender maintenance program, taken responsibility, and learned from his mistakes. Prokopition told the board, The old Gary is gone and said he's made changes so he'll never return to his crime cycle again. He's approved for day parole for six months to reside at a community residential facility and overnight leaves are not being restricted by the board. Prokopition says he plans to try to find janitorial or maintenance type work. While out on day parole, he has a list of conditions to follow. He has to continue with counseling for sexual deviancy and emotions management. He can't be anywhere near or around places where boys under the age of 18 are likely to be, like parks, swimming pools, or rec centers, unless accompanied by an adult previously approved by his parole supervisor. He's not allowed to work or volunteer where he would be in a position of trust or authority over boys under the age of 18. He can't have any contact with his victims or their families. He has to abstain from drugs and alcohol and is ordered to report all intimate sexual and non sexual relationships and friendships with females or males who have parental responsibility for male children under the age of 18. I was the one who told Michael Matthews that Prokopition was granted parole.
1: I messaged all the victims, and my brother. I messaged like no one knew this was happening. I've let everyone know because you let me know that they're all pissed off. They're mad that no one's even told any of us that he was getting parole. If it wasn't for you, I wouldn't even know.
0: I should note the reason Michael and the other victims weren't notified of the decision by the parole board is because they weren't registered. In Canada, victims wishing to receive information have to register with either the Parole Board of Canada or the Correctional Service of Canada. After that, victims will receive information about the offender as long as they're under the Parole Board's jurisdiction or until a victim asks to no longer be notified. The government notes this is to respect those victims who don't wish to receive information about the offender who harmed them. But from my experience, this leaves a lot of victims in the dark who either didn't remember to submit the paperwork for these notifications or simply didn't know how. Michael is angry with the decision, actually, He uses much harsher language than that. He's really disappointed in the system. Michael said he's particularly upset by the comments Prokopition made to the board, specifically that the assaults were not as a result of power and control issues, but as more of a misguided sense of closeness. Michael called those comments messed up and feels Prokopition did use his power over the foster boys to exploit and abuse them.
1: I think that's bullcrap because he used the threat of us saying anything to the older brothers assaulting us if we ever said anything to anyone. So it was a result of power.
0: He said he doesn't believe Prokopition will change and fears he'll find a way to re-offend, that it's only a matter of time. Michael said a lot of times when he was abused, his foster mother was just down the hall. So he feels like Prokopition enjoyed the rush of tempting fate, that he could get caught. Well, he
1: was doing it right right in the middle of the kitchen, right in the middle of the living room. And there's people all around the house. Yeah, he was trying to just, he would start, I guarantee you, he loved the rush. Making sure he wouldn't get away with it. But at the same time, it seemed like he didn't care.
0: He also questions Prokopition's remorse and believes he likely just told the parole board what they wanted to hear so he could get released from prison.
1: Oh, I know he's lying. Like, he had no remorse. Yeah, he told them exactly what they wanted to hear. Of course, he sat there quiet in his cell for five years. They they stayed whatever courses they told him to go and do. Just whatever he had to do for, for when his parole came so he could get out.
0: Michael told me he worries other young boys will be victimized. In dealing with this news, he said he's struggling with reliving the trauma of his abuse all over again.
1: Well, I've been fighting to not think about it.
0: I wanna pass along a special thanks from Michael to you, everyone who listened to his story. He was so overwhelmed by your messages of support and he went through and tried to like or respond to each of your comments on my Facebook page. Your messages really meant the world to him. So thank you. I also want to thank the hundreds of thousands of people who have listened to the final homecoming of Lucas Strasser Heard. So many of you reached out to tell me you personally identified with Lucas. You told me you felt like this could have been you, out for a night with friends. Some of you told me you pictured it being your son or daughter or someone else you love. All Lucas did was stand up for what was right, and that's when he was violently swarmed, stomped, beaten, and stabbed.
1: He was begging for help, like begging them for the, to stop and he's saying like he said like you're killing me, like please stop, I'm dying.
0: I met Lucas's family soon after he died, and I've watched them try to survive their overwhelming grief while dealing with what seemed like a never-ending court process. Lucas's story also shone a light on the bail system in Canada. I heard from hundreds of people who couldn't believe the emotional roller coaster the victim's family was put on while trying to seek justice for Lucas. Within days of arrest, one by one, each of the young men accused of murder in the case was granted bail. Even the man who faced the most serious charge of first-degree murder Nathan Gervais was let out of custody. It shocked many of you to know that he skipped bail and fled the country. Gervais was gone for more than a year before he was brought back to stand trial. The trial justice, William Tilleman, called Gervais's actions predatory and calculated, but didn't find this was premeditated murder. Instead, he found Gervais guilty of constructive first-degree murder. Gervais physically restrained and forcibly confined Lucas between a dumpster, the wall and the ground and stabbed him. Since this series aired, Gervais appealed that conviction. Now, Alberta's top court has dismissed that appeal and the conviction for first degree murder stands. It was a unanimous decision by the panel of Alberta Court of Appeal Justices. In a written decision handed down on June 1, 2020, the appeal justices said the trial judge applied the correct legal principles regarding the requirement that confinement be continuous and be distinct from the act of killing. Gervais' conviction stands. He remains in prison serving a life sentence with no chance of parole for 25 years. Lucas's father told me he was extremely relieved by the latest appeal court ruling and hopes this will finally be the end. In this season, we really wanted to open up conversations that are often difficult to have. One of those is child abuse. We did that through a number of stories. In The Boy Who Fell Through the Cracks, I shared the story of Alex Redita, who died after his parents refused to give him medical treatment. In working on this investigative podcast, I was able to track down a recording of Alex made 10 years before his death. It was the very first time that recording was made public, allowing you to hear his haunting voice. Alex knew what he needed to survive, but in the end, he fell through the cracks.
3: Your mom doesn't do your blood sugar?
1: No, someone said don't take Alex's sugars anymore at home.
3: And how do you know that?
1: She told me. Who told you? My mom. Your mom told you not, that someone told her not to take your blood sugar at home? Yeah. So what happened when she didn't take your blood sugar? I got sick. You got sick? Yeah.
0: Alex's story was crushing to cover because it was so senseless and preventable. And I know it touched many of you and many of you messaged me frustrated and angry. This highlighted some gaps in our system. So if the same set of circumstances would unfold again today, that child could once again fall off the radar. And that spurred calls for change and leading the charge is Charlene Beck, the police officer who fought so hard to keep Alex safe
1: could have and should have been prevented. It is a death that should never have happened, ever. This was something that was so blatantly obvious, where everyone had con- should have had control of this. They knew what was happening. They knew what would happen. And um, he still suffered and died because of it. I mean, this is a case that, that will haunt me forever. I mean, it's, it's, how can it not? And I will say that until my last breath is this could have been prevented.
0: I checked in with Charlene to see if there's been any progress. She told me she's still working on it, and we hope to be able to bring you an update sometime soon. Brittany McInnes was a teenage girl murdered in her own home she was also the victim of sexual abuse. But that didn't become known until well after her death. This episode included exclusive audio of the killer confessing to police that had never been made public before. And, uh...
3: And she got up, and I got up with her, and i I pushed her back down for some reason and I don't even know why I did. And I struggled with her and kind of went from there. That's oh tough. boy. Never oh.
1: yeah, in a million years would I have ever thought I would do something like that. I don't know what's happening. in me. no idea.
0: And even though I reported on this case from start to finish, in putting together this episode, I discovered this story went much deeper than I ever expected. Her sister Katie courageously spoke out and shared her story with me.
2: And that's something that really is annoying is that everybody just thinks he was just this great guy and just snapped one day. And it's just, that's just not true. Everyone... He portrayed himself as this, like, great human being. In reality, he was just the devil. I think he was just, like, so self-indulgent that he just thought he was getting away with it. He just thought he was that person. He's like, I can do whatever I want. I'll get away with whatever I want. And, you know, if we said something, nobody would believe us because, like you said, everyone saw him as this person that, you know, like you said, this was a one-off. Like, no one would suspect him to be that human being. So, I mean, If I shared what he was doing to us, who would believe us?
0: Also in this season, we took you through a number of high profile cases. One that left an entire nation shocked with the graphic disturbing details. A case the family of the victims describe
2: as a real life horror show. And I literally feel like it jumped out of my body because they hit the ground. I like, I think I was screaming, I was crying. And I remember thinking my dad could fix this. I'm like, you've got to fix this because this isn't real, this isn't true. You can fix this, so just fix this, dad.
0: Darkness in the Past shares the story of Terry Blanchett and his daughter, Haley Dunbar Blanchett. As well, in this series, we also share the impact this crime has had on the killer's family, his mother has PTSD and struggles with depression and suicidal thoughts.
3: My car window was smashed. My tires have been slashed. My doorbell was beaten in. People have broken in. You've gone through things and piled tires up to my window, my bedroom window. Trying to get in, I think, I don't know some sort of feces thrown all over the house on the outside. Hanging my car. You don't know if these people are local or are they from out of town, like if somebody could be so angry at me that it manifests into action. I'm terrified. I'm scared to leave my house. Even to mow my lawn, I just, I can't do things. I can't go grocery shopping. I can't, it's completely changed my life.
0: One case that highlights ongoing trauma for the families of the victims is the story of the biggest mass killing in Calgary's history, the Brentwood Five Massacre. Lawrence Hong, Katie Paris, Jordan Segura, Josh Hunter, and Zachariah Rathwell were stabbed to death. The young man who did it, Matthew DeGrude, was found not criminally responsible or NCR. The courts found that he was clearly experiencing a psychotic episode when he killed the five victims. He was eventually diagnosed with schizophrenia. The families of the Brentwood Five want Canadian legislation changed so serious violent offenders deemed to be NCR would be mandated to continue their treatment and monitoring indefinitely. They've asked for Canadians to contact their members of parliament to lobby for change. And following our episodes on this case for both the podcast and TV series, many people have done just that. Now, Five different MPs are joining together to show their support for the families. The efforts are led by Calgary Midnapore MP Stephanie Cousy.
2: They have asked me to do this and I will, I consider their concerns to be legitimate. And so I will do what I can in an attempt to uh, have their concerns uh, evaluated
0: I will for sure keep you updated on any developments in this case. As we wrap up Season 2 and look ahead to Season 3, I want to talk about something that's really important to us. One of the mandates we created for Crime Beat is to share stories from a range of cases I've covered. It shows that crime affects everyone, regardless of gender, ethnicity, or socioeconomic background. That means discussing important issues like residential schools, the 60s scoop, sharing stories from immigrants and refugees, and the struggles that can create. You likely won't hear from us until the end of summer, but I'm not taking the summer off. Far from it. I'm already working hard to bring you compelling new stories going beyond borders to share some of Canada's most high profile cases. That means taking the time to go through court documents, to reach out to families and investigators, and find ways to advance these cases. We will continue to push the envelope and share details you won't hear anywhere else confession tapes, wiretaps, and exclusive interviews, things you didn't see on the news. Thank you so much for listening. If this is the first time you've listened to Crime Beat, please go back. There are more than 30 episodes in the first two seasons of Crime Beat. This year, the television adaptation of Crime Beat debuted as the first original podcast series to ever premiere on a major Canadian network. You can watch episodes from me, as well as other global news journalists from across the country on Crime Beat TV. Those episodes are all available to watch on the Global TV app, Amazon, and internationally on YouTube. Please consider sharing Crime Beat with your friends and family. And I would love to have you give our show a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Crime Beat is written and produced by me, Nancy Hickst, with producer Dila Velasquez. Audio editing and sound design is by Rob Johnston. Special thanks to photographer-editor Danny Lantella. I also want to thank our production assistant, Ryan Robinson. And thanks to Chris Bassett, the National Director of Content and Editorial Standards for Global News. If you have questions about one of the episodes, send them my way. You can reach me on Twitter at Nancy Hickst, on Facebook at Nancy Hickst Crime Beat. And I'd love to have you join me for added content on Instagram at nancy.hickst. That's N-A-N-C-Y dot H-I-X-T. Thanks again for listening. Please join me next time.